figure out how to get better at doing the hard things that make life exciting. I'm just sitting recording this introduction up at Mangawai up in, in Northland and got an exciting guest for you on the podcast today, a guy by the name of Blair Mannering. Blair is a designer, he's the owner of Ocean Design which he's, he's owned and run for kind of the, the last three decades. It's a really fascinating conversation with him today about some of the challenges that he's he's faced over that time as a business owner, but also conversation about thinking about purpose, it's about making hard decisions, and it's about self-awareness as well, all of which are interesting topics, I think, at this time of year, especially as we head into the new year. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this, this conversation with Blair and I today, Thank Thanks so much for taking the time to get uncomfortable with us. Blair, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks so much for taking a bit of time to sit down with me today. You're welcome. I We should probably thank Paul Nielsen for setting us up to have a chat. So mm. Paul, if you're listening, thanks mate. I always like to start off with a little bit of background about yourself. Where were you born? Where did you, where did you grow up? Cool, thanks. So yeah, Blair, Blair Mannering, born in Whanganui and grew up through there sort of you know until about the age of 17 and then moved to Wellington and I've been here ever since. Interesting, well, interesting thing about that I suppose because it's about being uncomfortable I suppose. For me I guess my growing up was kind of you know it was probably a standard family sort of arrangement to a point and then I was at my secondary school days and I became sort of a I remember going to school one day and we had to on a form and they, they were trying to gather write down what your father's occupation was. So they're obviously just doing some research and going, mm. you, know, you know, Bob Smith, hey, you know, whatever year you were and what your father did. And and I remember at that point my dad, it was so much, I actually wasn't sure what he was doing to be honest. I lived with him, it was just the two of us living together, but he sort of did all sorts of things. So I just wrote down self-employed entrepreneur and I didn't even know what that meant. So I was probably about <laughs> 15 at the time and I thought, it sounded cool. And I, was, I guess it was my way of trying to work out, okay, well, he seems to be doing lots of different things, but then doesn't seem to have a nine to five job. You know, and I suppose I was just trying to work out that, you know. So that's interesting because then I suppose I was creative all through school. So I went to a sort of a pretty elite boys boarding school. You know, it was a very rarefied sort of environment, but I was a day boy. So I kind of would go during the day. Mm. And growing up with dad, you know, he was pretty, you know, it was just the two of us. And so I pretty much just lived at school. So I was kind of, a, you know, I'd be sleeping in studies at the school and I'd be sneaking in for meals and at lunchtime and dinner and stuff like that because I wasn't too sure what I'd be eating when I got home. But that's really got really meshed into the kind of the whole fabric of the school more so than you would normally. And then I was sort of marked out early on. I was because it was kind of conservative seventies provincial New Zealandness, right? So if <laughs> yeah. you were if you were any by shape or form creative, then you had a big label put on you. And I don't know, I know some people that that put in a positive way or a negative way, right? Luckily, the world's changed now, and I think actually, you know, mm. that we, that, you know, we far more accepting and embrace and we embrace creativity, and you know. You, know, you can see the amount of kids coming through now and just what they do and how they do stuff it's mm. just light years from yeah. Wanganui back in those days but luckily for me I suppose because I was part of the system in a sense that what they did was actually I was seen as a positive creative so I was doing caricatures of, of the staff members and they've been put up in the staff room and you know sort of you know so and that got me sort of 
sort of almost like becoming aware that actually be to be a to be a creative thinker and to be creative actually was something that could be you could build an identity around and actually actually it was a positive thing and I think that then led me to go and I guess down the path that I am now which is a you know, a designer and owner of my own design company is that and is that why you moved to Wellington to to pursue that yeah it is actually because I because I well no actually because I'm talking about being uncomfortable I was then got to the end of my seventh form and had this desire to to go to to be creative mm. but lacked confidence I guess that's only the realization of actually oh shit actually what I do now in those days there were you either did fine arts or there was like two design schools in the country and didn't have enough confidence to focus on going for the design schools and I knew I didn't want to be a fine artist I sort of realized early on that if you to be an artist you know, you've got to have confidence and a desire to self-express and I guess for me my creativity which is more aligned to design is about a problem-solving process with creativity. Yeah. So I instinctively thought, actually, I'm not going to go and do fine arts because that's not my thing. And then I looked at the design school and it was like incredibly intimidating. It was very hard to get into. They took 15 people a year. You had to do a portfolio. And I was like, yeah, no. Nah. So I thought, I thought I'd just sort of take the easy road, I suppose, and ended up coming to Vic and doing two years of a, of a BA. And then at that point, like you were saying before, they were kind of two fantastic years. Mm. But pretty much, I think over two years, I got about half... Half the amount of credit you get in one year, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was pre-student loan days, so basically, you know, you, you could have a good time, and we weren't going into debt to do it. But anyway, I finally sort of reached two years into that point and went, actually, now this is just what you're doing with your life, you know. My then 14-year-old brother, I remember being down with my mum because my parents were separated, and I was on the top bunk and he was on the bottom bunk. And I remember lying there at night, and he was like, this, "I'm 17, 18, and this 13-year-old brother, youngest brother, lying on the bunk." giving me life coaching lessons <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember going down, so what are you going to do with your life and I'm sitting in the dark looking at the ceiling you know you can't see it on a podcast mm. but the, the bunk was like about a top of the bunk was like about a foot from the roof you know so I was yeah. like <laughs> you had to roll out you couldn't sit up yeah, you got, yeah, you got yeah, it yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so no he's got a point so I decided to run away and went to went to, went to Queenstown followed my girlfriend down there at the time and really kind of didn't do much down there really kind of just but before I went I I heard about this. There was a new way of a new course that I was starting at design school, which was a foundation course and for mature students. And because I'd done two years of university and the grand, age, grand old age of 19, I was now a mature you quali- student. You qualified as I a mature. I, I did. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I sent up an application. And the good thing about it was you didn't have to do like a big, huge design portfolio, which is what the issue was with the previous one. Mm. To apply to get into the design school, you had to do not only your school bursary art portfolio, you had to do a whole big design portfolio. And I was intrinsically lazy so I didn't do that so I couldn't apply but I saw this thing and applied and then moved on down to Queenstown and then had made friends with a guy from Invercargill he'd never been to the North Island so I said why don't we go up north and you can meet my mates and we can have a bit of fun and, and the day we left my girlfriend brought out a letter that had just arrived that morning and it was an acceptance from the design school hmm. and had been following me around New Zealand as I'd been traveling because <laughs> <laughs> it had gone to my grandparents and then my parents and then finally caught up with me and actually started in two weeks so I quickly rang them and they said no no yeah, you can come so the jaunt for like a two week holiday turned into a goodbye to my girlfriend forever and I didn't have much gear and off we went so that was kind of how I got into design I went to design school did pretty well at it but sort of halfway through design school I sort of had this epiphany and I suddenly thought well what am I going to do when I'm 50 what's that going to look like I don't know why I thought that but and I thought well actually if you're going to do this you might as well go into it with the view of actually owning your own business because who's going to employ a 50 year old designer and so I thought well actually if I'm going to do this I've got to go out and I've got to at some point own my own business and so yeah so that was sort of what happened and then basically I got a, from graduated got a job 
two years in, the chap I was working with said, would you like to be my business partner? Which I thought was pretty cool. I was about mm. 22 at the time or 21 at the time. And I was like, yeah, there's only th- three of us in the business. So I said, I think it was about that point where, you know, you, I was probably thinking about going off on my OE and I don't think he wanted to lose me. So I think he was kind of going strategically, like, how, do I, how do I keep this yeah, guy here, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah, so it was quite clever really. But it kind of fitted with what my aspirations were. So that was good. And so did that and you know, 30 years later, here we are. So it was a pretty easy decision for you at the time just to say, yep, I'm, I'm keen to, to join you as a business partner as opposed to an employer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, it was a terrible induction. I mean, I mean we're not, I'm not partnered with this, guy, with this guy anymore. We separated after about 10 years. That's another story around sort of, I've, I've bought this business twice. So originally there were, there was three of us and two of us bought our older partner out. And then 10 years ago, I bought my other partner out. And one was a horrific experience and one was a really positive one. So in terms of the whole separation, once you're in your business with someone and you've got a partnership that's dis- mm. dissolving, then just how ugly it can be and then how, actually yeah. how you can manage it. In a I mean, are, you, are you happy to yeah to dig into that? And yeah. we'll, we'll kind of yeah, loop cool. back around to the sure. start again. But what were the big differences between the one that went well and the one that didn't go well? Uh, well, I think the, the, the first issue was um, essentially the partner that I had, he it was his, he'd founded the business, so it was his mm. business. And I think he was, you know, he was frustrated with, certain things and I guess the good lesson I suppose is actually if you go into business you need to be really thinking ahead through what could happen because when we did our shareholders agreement he was very generous in the way that he valued the business so he sort of said well if you break up then the business would be valued on the net tangible assets which is basically the stuff in the business not anything else and so running a design agency or an advertising agency I mean you've got a few desks and a few computers but not much else so mm-hmm. the value of it is actually really small and I think when it unraveled, it sort of in a way because the business was about had about ten people, but like we are now, he was he became very dissatisfied with the business and he was quite negative. And actually, you know, he had a few a few other challenges with some other things. And so it was a very poisonous sort of atmosphere. He was a very black and white sort of character. So if you were on his good side, then you're the you know because you're yeah. an amazing guy to work with. You couldn't have met one more generous. But if 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 you weren't, then it would become pretty difficult. And of course, as soon as it got polarised around that situation, then it became, you know, sort of being the good guys were the, we sort of became the enemy, I suppose. Mm. That's how we felt anyway. And so, you know, no lines of communication. We, we sort of, my partner Gary at the time, we went to him and said, look, actually, we're going to leave. We just, we just can't work here anymore. You know, actually, we're going to, when he was like, okay, that's fine. Fuck off then. And so, okay, that's good. Then we were all going to go. And then, so then we then told the staff and then they came to us and said, actually, if you're going, can we come with you? Which was a sign, right? And mm. so, so then Gary, my partner at the time, he was like, we're like, oh, maybe we should buy it off Ian rather than the other way around. And so we made him an offer and threw backwards and forwards and we finally got to a point where you know, he, he exited and, and, we, and we bought the business off him. But it was just horrendous, like people not, you know, being, and we had all through, this is like, probably took the, I mean, I probably can't remember the exact amount of time, but it was probably like a, a number of months where mm. we were resolving all this stuff. And so of course, during that time, no one was talking to anyone. Yeah, you know, yeah. so it was just like you just imagine the most toxic of atmospheres, you know. Yeah, um, and it was just horrendous. So, How did that affect the quality of the work that you guys were doing at the time? Well, funnily enough, we, we, when we went to the staff and said, "Oh, look, you know," so I think people just adapt because I think mm. when we because we were living at Gary and I, and I'm sure Ian was as well. Like it was just you know, no one wanted to be there, right? But then when we finally told the team and said, "Oh, look, we're going to separate," I remember them a number of them being quite surprised. Mm. So even though the, it was not a very nice place to work, and the atmosphere was really, f- well, I remember it being. I can remember to this day the emotion around it you know it just made me realise that actually some people don't see the things that you see right mm. so the work actually was actually fine I'm sure the work that I was doing wasn't great I don't know the work the other guys the other principles we're doing wasn't great probably either but by and large the stuff kind of mm. yeah and it was hard yeah, so it was tough but 
But there was the interesting thing was that actually, so then when Gary and I bought in and out, we sort of said, okay, well, we're never going to do that again. And if we ever separate, then you know, we need to not do that. So, and then of course, you know, sort of 10 years later, we sort of had the same conversations on, not because it was feral, actually it was done for the um, first time over a two year period where we got to the point where Gary sort of wanted and needed to move on, but it wasn't through, you know, there was no anger in that. It was actually like he just, just, he just needed to work for himself and do his own thing and not have the responsibility of a business and a mm. team of 20 people, you know, that sort of thing. So I remember, and so I remember our, our separation agreement on that one was that the, the first line in that contract was, you know, the shareholders agreement, we, we, we worked at the value of the business and we, we sort of just, the accountant said, I think it's worth this much. And I said, that sounds fine. And he said, that sounds fine. And then it was done. It was really easy. <laughs> but in the agreement, it said, the first line, you know, rule one, you know, neither Gary or Blair, both Gary and Blair not agree that neither of them work like a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a good lesson from the first time round. It was, yeah. yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, this afternoon we see that one coming either, you know. So it's, um, it's just interesting. Mm, it is, it is. What other challenges have you faced with owning and, and running a business over the last thirty years? Well, I suppose I, I well, lots because I think you know our industry has constantly evolved. Mm. And so thinking about the notion of making yourself uncomfortable, I think we've often had to sort of develop. The work we're doing now is sort of similar, but it's different to what we did 30 years ago. But technology's completely changed. You know, I mean, you know, when we had our first office and I joined, you know, we had a fax machine and one of those flash typewriters that had like a, a reverse erase but function. And so you type a line and you made a mistake, you could go back and erase the line and retype it before yeah. I typed it. That was pretty flash. No computers. And then about a year and we got our first Mac. Now, of course, you know, digital marketing, the internet, mm. all that sort of stuff has now come through significantly. And so... The principles of what we do haven't changed, but actually the way that it gets distributed or used has changed significantly. So that's, but that's just the evolution, I think. And actually, you've got to constantly look at what you're doing and ask the question, is it relevant? You know, because we, we might be comfortable doing what we've always done, but you just keep, you have to keep on asking the question, actually, is that what do what our customers need and want from us? What do we need to develop skills and have a plan and a vision for what that might be? And then actually, being in a small business you can't sort of you don't have huge resources to throw at things to go we're going to invest so much in a whole new mm. R&D team because who can do that right so you've got to you've got to think about it and work kind of a bit more um, pragmatically about it so if someone leaves then you make sure that the next person you bring has got the skills or can bring expertise or a new way of doing things to the mix that you don't have what you have and you've got to be quite deliberate about that otherwise you just end up replacing like with like and then I think you become irrelevant at the time. Yeah, and you end up kind of stagnating. In, That's right, yeah, like yeah. I think that the pace of change is only going to increase mm. as well with mm. in business, but also in life as well. And I think, I mean, you guys are in an interesting situation with design where mm. things have sort of rapidly changed. And other businesses probably have a little bit more leeway in terms of mm. they can be a bit slower in evolution. But again, if they don't evolve, then mm. they become irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, and we've also... I've, Tried to evolve and lots, tried lots of different things in a way. Like a couple of years ago, or, I mean, we do a lot of brand work, so we do a lot mm. of like sort of this sort of helping organisations clear on who they are, what they stand for, and what their point of difference is effectively, mm. and then sort of building brands and telling stories about that sort of stuff. And organisations like ours and advertising agencies are often really, really good at making organisations look and sound a million bucks. It's almost the point you sort of go, you come in here and you leave, and suddenly you're bright and shiny and you're awesome, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant that's had really shit food and shit service and they yeah. have they redo their day but you go back the next time and it's still shit food and shit yeah. service yeah. then what was the point right and I sort of had this epiphany and I was like actually people like us are really good at setting organisations up to fail because we almost make them can make them look sound too good and they can't live up to it mm. and so I had this epiphany and it was like actually we need to be more responsible for what we're doing in that space 
because it costs a lot of money and a lot of businesses you know like at that their future success depends on it and I just felt that we had a responsibility to actually make sure that whatever we're suggesting actually can deliver long-term value and so we so we do a lot of work now in terms of helping organizations internally around that sort of stuff so if, if, if we're going to be changing our positioning or what our brand stands for then generally that means the experience of the customer is going to need to change and actually the way we might work together internally or what we stand for how we talk about things or that needs to change and so we don't we can't make all those things change but what we can do is ask the questions and make sure that they're aligned so this is going to like a sort of not the fuck up that I'm going to tell you about so I've sort of decided to the new form of, evolu- um, of evolution of ocean I decided to crack, break the business into I read a H, Harvard Business Review article about um, ambidextrous organisation so it's mm. about, it was an article about how organisations who need to change while they're running, how they do it. And the principle was that you have your core business keep on doing what it's doing, but rather than spinning out a separate company, you actually, or have an innovation team, what you need to do is you actually need to create a sort of a parallel business that has the same leadership team across both. Mm-hmm. And then people change between the two with skills sets, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the idea being that actually, so it doesn't get set and forget. Because often you see in large corporates, they'll create like a little innovation group and they'll be doing wonderful stuff. But as soon as anything comes out of that group, it dies because the rest of the organization and the leadership of the organization doesn't value it or doesn't know how to incorporate mm-hmm. it. So we said, well, we will follow best practice. So you know, dramatically, just I broke the business into two halves. So we were about 25, 30 people. So I was like, okay, so we have our core team, which is our design business, and then we'll have this brand and culture business. And so and each will have their own leader, and we did strategic planning, and each had their own business plans, and P&Ls, and all that sort of stuff. And it was all beautiful, a beautifully formed thing. But because the thing we forgot to do was sort of sort of ask the customers whether they actually wanted it or not. So, yeah. so, I mean, it has allowed us to evolve and change and do things like that. But what it did teach me was the fact that actually, you know, you can... Coming back to my earlier point was actually it was trying to meet the need that we saw that actually we felt that actually organisations should value the fact that actually if you're changing your brand you should be thinking about what it means for you internally and if we could build skills around that that'd be a really powerful thing. The reality was that you know the market because we were ahead of the game. I think we'd be probably fly now actually, but nine years ago it, it didn't. So that was a bit of a, a savage lesson in terms of building it and they don't come. So that was quite an awkward. So that was and that was quite interesting in terms of leadership decisions and how you putting people in the, the right people in the right seats and then just how you scale and things like that which was interesting mm. how did you evolve kind of from those do you still have two no. separate teams yeah how no. did how did that change go or? well it was basically i think fundamentally what happened was that um people see what's going on so so and i guess we ran out of runway so we had some funding to do it and, and in hindsight we didn't have enough reserves to make it to carry it through mm. so they made it to sort of that part of the business we sort of the idea was that one half of the business would be making money and keep servicing and doing what we have always done while the other business came up to speed yeah and then over time obviously then this one here can then either keep going or it retrenches as a new business overtakes it and mm. then people transfer across that's kind of the principle um we ran it a runway so actually as a result we sort of you know we couldn't afford to keep on running i suppose but also too i don't think that the leadership and the, the culture in that particular team wasn't funny or it wasn't fantastic and, yeah. a, and a number of people a number of people opted out for that reason so it's mm. another good lesson to put the right person in the right seat you know i should have you know i think i was passionate about it but i kind of devolved myself from that the point being that actually we got to the point where actually it almost kind of organically started to come back into one again so it did that so we got some good learnings and we got some good stuff out of it but then we moved forward and then we sort of grew again and we thought actually we need to build our digital capability and so we grew and then coming to my towards my 50th birthday 
we'd sort of suddenly grown a team of nearly 30 people. I'm not a very good businessman, as you can tell. Had this team, and we again, we were like, um, it wasn't working, you know, like it was sort of we get to a point where, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've grind for a re to a point, but then you look at it and you go, actually, this is just, the culture was great, it was amazing, sort of everyone was getting well, it was great, but it was just, we were, it was just wasn't working from a business perspective. We'd built a web development team and we'd moved, created a product and a service that was right back in a commoditized space. So mm. it was about, Rather than being differentiated or different, we were sort of trying to do what everyone else was doing, and it wasn't working. And so I was, yeah, I remember it was coming up towards my 50th birthday, and we were very transparent here, so we share the numbers with people so people could see the income to the expenses sort of level, so there's a bit of a gap. And so I knew I needed to make some changes. So, and probably it was going to, logically, that would have meant probably a slight restructure with a couple of roles changing. They've been removed, I suppose, which is a brutal thing, but that's sort of what happens. But then I sort of remember going home and going, actually, what am I doing? You know, actually, you've got this business, you're sort of, falling out of love with it you're not that engaged with it it's fantastic it's got great people you know all these all the like amazing kind of support culture values mm. all really awesome but it's you know it's not it's not fulfilling what you want it to do right and that's not so much from a monetary perspective as much from a kind of a, a personal kind of alignment mm. perspective from me as the owner and i was like actually when, I said, so when, when have i been happiest when have we been done our best work and what was what size were we and, and what was the environment like and so it was almost like something I thought, actually, well, maybe there's something to go back to go forward. Because at that point, we were doing all sorts of things for people. We weren't really clear about what, who we were and what we were doing. Yeah, so I had this epiphany and I said, actually, right, okay. What if I went back and just focused on this one area, which is branding, which is kind of my passion and what we're really good at. And what if we really sort of focused on that? And then what sort of size of business would I need to do that? And so I went from like 25 to 8. And so that was pretty brutal to go, you know, to come to the team. And then... Around this, as I mentioned, it was my, this is not a lot of mystery, but it's a, I was coming up to my 50th birthday, and I thought, I just had a feeling that there might be something big surprise being, being planned for me, because I'm a great, do surprise stuff for other people. Mm. Anyway, so I remember they decided that I was going to tell the team on the Tuesday that we were going to have to go through this process, and there's going to be some significant changes, and it's, it was going to be not particularly great, but, but you know, we sort of had to do it, and I wanted to do it. So on the Friday, I had a meeting with my chairman of our board, and talking about the plans and details and sort of working through what roles might be disestablished and all that horrible icky stuff about people and then the door knocked and I walked out and the whole staff were there and a whole bunch of clients and all my friends and they'd organised a surprise 50th birthday party for me and all the staff had all individually made little videos saying what a great company Ocean was and what a great boss I was and how this has been the job of their life and really moving stuff and I was there like a, like it was amazing you know, there's heartfelt speeches and they've gone out around the world clients that we've worked with 20 years ago they've got videos made from people in the UK and they've compiled this amazing video and they just sort of put that on for me and I'm sitting there going God <laughs> <laughs> and so and so then on yeah and so that was just that was yeah awesome but horrendous at the same time because I knew that in two days I was going to come back and go right that was yeah, amazing but there's going to be some changes here and I thought to myself at the end of the day I went home and I was like in a real funk I was like I I'd said to my partner, I said, if you get wind of it, just you've got to stop it because it's going to happen. And she got wind of it, but she couldn't. It was like a runaway train. Mm. And so I was like, okay. And I went home and I remember thinking, oh, you know, you've created this amazing culture and this amazing business, and now you just completely rooted it. Because, you know, how do you come back from that when people have been so generous in their, their praise and their thoughtfulness, and then you're going to turn around and go, thanks for that. By the way, you no longer have a job here. Mm. I thought, that's just sucks. But I thought, well, actually, you've got to do it. 
you've got to actually, you know, you believe in why you need to do it and it's not going to be particularly easy to do it, of course. So on the Tuesday I came in and said, well, but actually, and, and told them and there were tears and I was crying and, you know, it was emotional, it was anything, but took them through the story of why, where we got to, where we got to and what I thought the future looked like for Ocean and who I thought might be part of the future and who unfortunately might not be. You know? And then I met with everybody individually after that and, you know, more tears and stuff like that. But what completely amazed me was the fact that actually to a person the first question they all asked was how are you and actually most of the general tenant was actually I don't like what it means for me but I can see that it's the right thing to do for the company and so that's okay and that made me then realize actually that all this talk about how you, you know the benefit of having a fantastic culture of and great values and stuff like that actually in times like that it's like great teams you know actually mm. they came through it and so three months on you know a large number of the team had move and we did everything we could to help find people new jobs and that sort of stuff so we tried to be proactive and generous as we could be around as we could be around that and um and we sort of you know remember sitting here with like you know if you, you know, if you went out there into, into our kitchen there's two big tables you know it used to be like completely full there'd be like 30 people all around the table mm. and then we remember the first meeting and there was like eight of us <laughs> <laughs> had to get smaller tables <laughs> yeah and everybody's looking at each other going all right you know so there's probably a bit of survivor guilt from everyone that was there and stuff but you know, we just, you know, that's since then, it was just, I guess, it was about two, three years ago, and we've just really flown since then, you know. We now, I think everyone who left us has gone on to better and brighter things for them. The team that stayed, I think, have really kind of owned it, and, you know, the businesses, you know, we now, if you don't know, make money, but actually, at the end of the day, we're making more money with the people with eight people than we were making with 30, you know. The yeah. turnover's twice as big and stuff like that. So it just shows if you get the right team, the right goal, then you can do stuff. Definitely. Yeah, so that was quite an uncomfortable moment. Yeah, yeah. I don't envy you with that, but it sounds like long-term it's been, it's mm-hmm. definitely been for the best. One thing, I'm going to flip things around a little bit. One thing that I wanted to ask you is, like you do a lot of work with companies around branding and around understanding who they who they are and what's yeah. important to them. And I think, obviously, from a business perspective, that is, that's really important. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's a little bit easier to do from a business perspective than it is from a personal mm. perspective. But mm. I think they're really important qualities and mm. thoughts for people to be having and they're quite uncomfortable thoughts for people to be having as well even from a business perspective are there some usual questions that you ask people to to start that process rolling so if someone's if someone's listening to this and think bloody hell i don't actually know who i am or Mm. what i stand for yeah well i think personally i think actually we've just been doing some work i actually had a client the other day who approached me um cfo of of a really fast growing really dynamic company and he's decided he wants what he wanted to get clarity on what his personal sense of purpose was mm. so I've been working with him and I do a bit of that with some leaders and you know people that are kind of um, usually young leaders people who actually kind of you know they might be you know in quite senior roles but they've kind of got their through ability and then they suddenly they, they're there and they suddenly have this moment where they go actually they've been told that quite rightly that you've got to be your authentic self right yeah and yeah. so but who am I and actually so that's really interesting so the so another thing is that the kind of the core thing around that is actually I think and I think what purpose for me is about is this idea that actually it's a mix of what is the contribution that I make to the world versus and then what is the impact that I want to have if you can kind of just slow down to those kind of core thoughts then that actually that's kind of quite a powerful way to think about it because it's easy to go because even my goes oh I want to make the world a better I'll make the world a better place yeah yeah good on you but actually what does that really mean you know actually you know most people may some people may not think that but actually but if you break it down it's like so so what are you going to contribute to do that and then actually in your area, what does that impact actually really mean? And a really good exercise was not by the other day, Simon Sinek has a, an exercise which I picked up, which 
actually I did about a month ago, which was quite a really interesting process. And it's about how you arrive at your own sort of how you get it. Because it's a really, really hard thing to do by yourself because you could have a pad and be running things in a diary or running things on, a, in the sh- on the, you know, post-it note or whatever. But you need, you need a sounding board and you need someone to guide you through it. So there's two things you can do. One is, the, is this idea that you get someone who's a really good, doesn't even know, know you that well, but someone that you, who you trust. And that's what I did with this guy the other day. And actually you tell them stories about key moments in your life. They are noting it down and documenting it. Mm. And they're sort of running on what they're hearing, but also they're then saying, looking for what the impact of that was. And so, you, so this course, there might be f- five, six, seven stories through your life that have like, good and bad, where you've responded in a particular way, or they've, they've influenced how you how you see things. And so that gives you some inputs. So, you, so, you, so, so then you go, okay, what what are the themes that emerge from that that are common? Are there any commonalities that are coming out of that? You know, is it a being? You know, you know, they're all stories of how you overcame a disadvantage, or mm. or they all these stories of how you helped somebody else, or you know, there'll be themes that you can pick out, yeah. and that gives you a bit of a clue. Is this helpful? Yeah, yeah. And, and then the second thing you do is then, which I found really interesting, was you then go out and get five, or four or five of your closest friends individually, and you meet with them, and you just ask them a really simple question, and that is, why are you friends with me? And then. When they start to answer, because they go, they usually say, because you're a dick or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the typical <laughs> Kiwi way. You do that, but you've got to dig, right? <laughs> yeah, and, so yeah. you, and then you dig by not by asking more why questions, but by asking what questions. So, you know, because what, what gives you specifics. And then, and again, you know, they'll get past the, the ribbing and then they start suddenly realize you're serious. And then they start trying to answer in their own way, right? And so you can sort of dig into that. And then again, if you do four or five, then certain, there'll be themes and certain things that keep on leaping out at you and resonating yeah. with you and then when you combine those with those key stories then that gives you quite a good bit of data to go okay well okay so it looks like you know, I've always the stories that resonate with me are aware of there's this thing and then my friends actually see this in me and then you come back to that idea of going okay right so the fun thing about what what's my contribution and what's my impact and put those things together you know so two you know it's the accepted sort of phraseology as you go okay you know it's two gap so that gap mm. so to share my knowledge so that young people can grow and develop yeah for instance mm. or to like your one would be like you know to, um, to help people get better at doing hard things so they can go out and have an exciting life yeah exactly you know mm. what I mean so you, you've got it right so, so yeah. then that, and when you codify it like that suddenly it becomes quite healthy mm. and, if you, and if it's right and obviously you can play around with the words you want to get it quite yeah. emotional in yeah. your own language but then suddenly you go to be able to be to be able to express that is quite a, a powerful thing. You know, if you're going for a job and people go, these, these days, you know, employers and employees want to know what an individual's value set and, and purpose in life is. Mm. And a lot of people are asking the other organisations, you know, actually, yeah. this is what I believe in, this is what I want to do. Let me see how your organisation aligns with my my view on how the world should be, you know. And if it aligns, then great, I'm, I might be prepared to come and join you. But if it doesn't, I'm particularly younger kids, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure as hell not, you know. So it's a really, I mean, people go, oh, purpose, but actually it's really important in terms of actually helping people talk about common beliefs and work together. It's also really important because actually it does actually allow people to make decisions about what they do and don't do, you know. Mm. And like, it, as you talked about before, really important in regards to building a culture in a mm. business and a company mm. is mm. that you want 
people that fit with the, the mm. culture that you're cry- trying to create as well. Mm. Now that's, uh, that's, that's really helpful information actually. With purpose, I, it's something that I, th- I think kind of constantly evolves as mm. well and you, you constantly look to refine it. Then it changes based on life experiences mm. that you've had as well. Like is that a process that you do on a regular basis or that you suggest to people to do on a regular basis? Yeah, well, I think it's it's not like a set and forget thing. Mm. You know, like I think it's like, I mean, people say, oh, you know, we do a lot of work with helping organisations define their their values, you know, and people mm. go, oh, bloody values, you know, everyone's got innovation and integrity and trust, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. and everyone's got the same words. But yeah. actually I go, well, that's just because most people don't go deep enough doesn't mm. mean it's a bad thing to have. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's about going actually... It's the whole, how do we do things around here and what, what are the kind of the, the guidelines by which we want to live our life or, or by which we want to work to, you know? So you've got to constantly look at them because things do change, you know? I mean, I think Jim Collins used to say that if you've got, you should have enduring values that actually, no matter what happens, and it's easier to think of it on an individual basis, there'll mm. be certain things I'm sure with you that actually, you know, if your life tips up, tipped upside down and, and you could no longer do the things that you want to do or you're in a situation that you want, then actually... The values that you would still hold dear and live your life by, no matter the circumstances, the mm. things that you'd never let go of, they they your values. Yeah. You know, like as a business, it's like you know, if you, like we did, you know, we changed massively, you know, and made some big decisions. But actually, then actually, you know, it was about treating, treating people with respect. You know, mm. no matter what happened, we still did that, right? And actually, you could say, well, that's just a weasel word. But actually, when push came to shove, did we? we did we do that sort of stuff? Right yeah, through? were your actions congruent yeah. with the yeah. value? That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Just mindful of the time, Blair. Sure. I've got a couple of questions that I want to finish things off with. One is, do you have any strategies that you usually use to approach uncomfortable situations? I'm quite good at putting myself into them subconsciously. <laughs> yeah. I kind of, I keep on finding myself sort of leadership situations where I don't really want to be, but I keep on, and there's a, like I'm doing a workshop this afternoon and I'm with three CEOs of large organisations and I'm shitting bricks about it. <laughs> and I keep, I keep on thinking, why the hell do I come and doing this to myself? So I think this, I think the strategy around that is really, if you you just have to step towards it and actually mm-hmm. you've got to go with the uncomfortableness of it. For me, I, it's almost like at the point that I know I start feeling uncomfortable then I sort of know that there's going to be some gain at the end of it. It doesn't yeah. make it easier at the time, but I no. think I, I just got to, you got to see through it. Someone said to me actually, it's that idea of actually, if your motivation is because you want to get away from something, then you'll never reach your goal mm-hmm. because you'll stop moving at the point that you feel safe. Yeah. But if you're motivated to go towards something, then you'll actually do everything you, you'll get to that point. So, mm. so what I try and do is go actually, well, what is my motivation here? Is it is it because I want to get away from over there, or is it because I want to get to there? Because I know if I if it's the other one, I'll you know it's like like being in danger. Yeah. You run, and as soon as you're mm. safe, you start walking. Yeah. You might have thought I'm going to run from here to the river, but if you get halfway and the and the tigers stop chasing you, you you won't keep running, right? Mm. Whereas actually, if you you know, you know what I mean so for me it's about yeah I think it's about you've got to, got to step step towards it and take a deep breath yeah cool it's probably not that helpful but no 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 no. it's it's very helpful and, and also interesting to think about the motivations as well and I think having the runaway motivation is it's a legitimate one and totally often good. it's really good to get people moving and start them off with but you just need to be aware when that motivation starts to run out that you can flip it throw so instead of running away you flip the motivation so that you're running towards at that point so you don't just stagnate there absolutely this is exactly right you know and actually that's right yeah and i think as a business we've constantly i keep on putting into situations that we're uncomfortable so at the moment we there's a couple of new ideas we've got one is sort of you know i think you know it's time for 
businesses to show more leadership in terms of biculturalism, in terms of you know use of tereo and use of sort of working with iwi and maori and actually mm. sort of actually building you know and, and, and as kind of being storytellers we kind of actually you know i think we've got a real accountability in that space mm. so we're sort of developing a new building a team now and looking to recruit people that are actually you know they've got you know uh, either maori or have got um Tikang or Tereo skills, so actually, so actually, so that we can authentically go and help our clients step towards that sort of space, mm. you know. And that's, and that's, you know, I grew up in you know, White Wanganui in the seventies, right? So <laughs> it's personally, I find it, you know, um, and I find it personally quite uncomfortable because I sort mm. of, you know, have all these kind of irrational fears and stuff, which are completely misguided, but it just comes from my environment. So I'm having to go, you know, actually, this is the right thing to do. You've just got to get over yourself, and actually, if you go into it with the, with the right intention and do it with treat people with respect and listen and you know and work together, then you'll you'll, you'll we'll get there. You know, so, mm. so yes, that's my little thing at the moment. Cool, cool. Blair, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with me today and have a chat through some of this Thanks. this stuff. And I'm sure it's going to be helpful for people to understand themselves a little bit better, but and understand their businesses too. If people are interested in finding out more about you and the work that you do, what, what's the best place for them to do that? Oh, thanks. Well, obviously, um, probably I'm on LinkedIn. So just Blair Mannering, as in Dad's Army. So M-A-I-N-W-A-R-I-N-G. Or just OceanDesign.co.nz is our website. Cool. Yeah. And final question. Yeah. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? As in... Any type of challenge could be physical, could be mental, could be okay. something okay. different. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if you've done that one, but I think my challenge would be over the next week, find a couple of friends and sit down with them and ask them why they're your friend and actually don't let them get off easy and just dig into it. You'll find actually, I mean, I um, did it with a couple, so a couple of very old friends, actually never, ever had that conversation. And we both left the richer for actually having a, a conversation about that. Awesome. That's a, that's a great challenge. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Thank you, mate. Cheers. There you have it, team. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Blair. It was a fascinating conversation. Really cool to to be able to explore a few ideas with him. One thing that I am doing, I'm going to be running a few webinars early in 2020. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, it might already be 2020. They're going to be around strategically identifying a challenge for you to take on in this year 2020 or kind of even even more long term than that so these webinars are going to run through strategically picking the challenge working out a plan of attack to how to tackle that and also identifying the the most likely roadblocks for you and planning on how to overcome them in the moment when when they happen so if you're, if you're interested in it, uh, I don't have the links up to those webinars just yet, but flick me a message uh, on social media or send me an email, chris at chrisdesmond.nz, and what I'll do is I'll send them through to you once I've got them, uh, got them ready to roll, especially if you're thinking, I don't have any New Year's resolutions, or I want some New Year's resolutions, or mine are a bit shit, or... Actually, you just want to you want to go a little bit deeper and, and think about 
the why behind what it is that you've decided that you want to do for 2020, then these are going to be interesting for you. So looking forward to seeing you on them in the next couple of weeks. And a couple of quick thanks. Thanks as always, Dryland, for your awesome editing skills. Thank you to my brother, Jeremy Desmond, for the amazing theme music. And thank you so much to you guys for taking the time to have a listen. Again, Merry Christmas. Have a Happy New Year. You may have already, you've probably already had both of those already. But yeah, thanks for thanks for getting uncomfortable with me in 2019 and looking forward to many more uncomfortable times in 2020. Oh.